Good morning, Orangewood Church. I'm Rachel Joubert. If you all would open to Ephesians 4, I'm going to be reading the scripture today. It is Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. I'll give you a second if you have your bulletins or your Bibles. Um, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing um, the bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each of us one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. I think the uh, pastoral team chose the least verbose guy to take this really short passage of scripture to preach this morning. Pray with me. Father God, this is your word. It's rich. Father, it's deep. And it's sharp, like a two-edged sword. Lord, I pray that you would use it this morning to cut deeply into my heart, to cut deeply into our hearts, and allow the saving freeing, enabling power of the truth of your word to transform us from the inside out. Father, forgive me of my sin, my arrogance, my self-righteousness, my self-confidence, And enable me to be used as a conduit that we might hear from you this morning. Come, have your way with us. Prepare our hearts. 
Teach us, grow us up. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, uh, Chris, is there any way we can turn the lights down on me? I feel like I'm under about seven floodlights. I don't know if that's possible. Maybe it's not. But anyway, oh, that's better. Thank you. Yeah, I'd like it to be about me, but, but it's not. Hey, this morning, I'm preaching a sermon on Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. It's a continuation of where we've been. And uh, there it is. The title's Walking Worthily, Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. I'm going to present the message this morning in a little different fashion. Um, my entire sermon is going to be a slideshow. So, um, so hang with me. Uh, the good thing is, is everything is up there, including the Word of God. So, so bear with me. If you're not visual, this might be distracting to you. If you are visual, this might be really good. Uh, so anyway, are you ready? Buckle in. Here we go. So there was a people, and their God, he was good. He was sovereign. The giver of life, provider and protector, a temple was built by gifted artisans. Temple worship was established. A priesthood was set up. Sacrifices were made and offerings were collected. The temple was focus of religious and economic life in the city. People traveled from near and far to worship there. Foreigners came with their gods and threatened pure worship. A zealot threatened to destroy the temple. A temple, the temple was destroyed, but rebuilt by the faithful. Other faiths came into the city. Today, there is but a remnant of their glorious temple. You may be tempted to think that I just described that temple and that temple mount. Nope. That would be another sermon altogether. Not preaching that one. The temple I just described was this temple. The temple of Artemis. The temple of Artemis was one of the Seven Wonders of the Ancient World. One contemporary historian who visited those ancient wonders said that this temple was the pinnacle of all seven. It was between two to four and a half times the size of the Acropolis in Greece. This was a massive place. And it was the central place in Ephesus for the worship of their God, whom I just described. Who was that God? The goddess Artemis. This is one of the statues uh, depicting the goddess Artemis. Likely a statue similar to this was inside the temple. Uh, Artemis was a woman, um, a virgin woman, and she was the goddess of fertility. So their depiction of her, creating an image, uh, God in their own image, in the image of humanity, she's a woman, and she is ornately covered in a particular outfit that looks rather unusual. Uh, different aspects of her authority are represented by her costume. Um, she was thought possibly to have multiple breasts because she was the goddess of fertility. Others thought that those interesting, that top half of her outfit uh, was 
actually beehives. There was a bee that created its own hives naturally in leaves, and this looked like that uh, beehive. Also on the lower part of her skirt, there are different animals, and they're arranged in order. The animals are gathered together in an organized, orderly fashion around in rows around her dress. Around her neck are necklaces made of seeds and made of acorns. And then on her top of her head is what appears to be, uh, this probably would have been like a reed crown, like a basket, but it's set on her head and was representative of the columns in her temple that you see there. Today, that's the temple. Some of you may have visited this. This temple is in uh, western Turkey, where Ephesus used to be. That's the temple today. The temple is no more. No longer the temple of Artemis. Now the base of that column is used as a nest for pelicans. Where did the great Artemis go? What happened to their system of worship. The goddess left the building. The worshipers fell away. The temple fell apart. Why? Here's why. Because an eternal power and an everlasting truth came to Ephesus through one man, the apostle Paul. Today, we're going to look at this text. And what we're going to look at is In his words, in this beginning of chapter 4, he urges the church in Ephesus to do something. Because these words are everlasting words of truth, his urgings are not only just for the first church in Ephesus, they're also for us, Orangewood. So here's how we're going to break it down. We're going to look at how Paul is urging us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling in Christ. There's three ways that he talks about walking. Walk together in unity with God walk together trusting in the diversity of his gifts, and walk together towards the goal of God. You with me? So let's jump in. So he starts out this chapter, I therefore, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. In seminary, we were taught that any time the word therefore comes up, you ask the question, what's it there for? This is... Remember, Pete preached last week, and he preached the prayer at the end of chapter 3, and he said that it was the hinge. It was the hinge of the entire letter, of the letter, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And so this is the first, these are the first two words, if you will, of the second half of the letter. I therefore. So what's it there for? It's there because Paul is about to share information that's based on the previous three chapters of Ephesians. And basically, the first three chapters, Paul is explaining in detail the gospel of grace and how we become in Christ through faith in him. So because of who you now are, Ephesians, because you are now in Christ, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. So what he's about to say is a result of the fact that the saints in Ephesus These Gentile, previous pagan worshipers have come to Christ by believing the same gospel you perhaps have 
entrusted yourself with. You with me? So here it is, chapter one through three. Paul focused on who we are in Christ. He talked about new realities that are true for us as believers. He talked about our new position, that we're actually in Christ, that we actually sit with Christ in heavenly places. How is that possible? So in chapters one through three, who we are, in chapters four through six, he begins to explain how we should live since we are in Christ. And he talks about new perspectives that we now have because we have new eyes. And he talks about new practices we should put into place in our lives. So that's where we are. So from chapter one, quick review. As believers, God has eternally blessed you and I, if you're in Christ. What has he done for us? Look at that list. He's blessed us with every heavenly blessing. Have you ever noticed that? says that in chapter one, that as believers, we've received every spiritual blessing through Christ. That's amazing. The word wealth, the word riches shows up a lot in chapters one through three. Paul is trying to explain to these new believers in Ephesus that they are rich. They are wealthy in Christ, spiritual riches. He's blessed us with every heavenly blessing. He's chosen and called us. Called us. He's adopted us, accepted us through Christ. He's redeemed us. He's forgiven us. He reveals God's will to us. He gave us and made us his inheritance. And we are sealed in him through the Holy Spirit. And he gave us that first deposit of the Holy Spirit when we trusted in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. That is how wealthy you are. That is how rich you are. Can you get your head around that? Does that even affect you? Because those riches don't pay the bills. Those riches don't put food in your refrigerator. Those riches don't fix your car when your engine blows. But that's who you are in Christ. And this reality, in many regards, is more lasting and more eternal than any of the physical realities we enjoy moment by moment. So here's the deal. Although the Ephesian Gentiles were idol-worshiping pagans without Jesus, they were spiritually dead, disobedient, depraved, and doomed. That's who these people were. Worshiping Artemis in that temple... God called them through Paul. God effectually called them. God loved them. God quickened them. He exalted them. He kept them. He worked in them. He worked through them. That's the reality of what the gospel did to the Ephesian Gentiles, pagan worshipers. So as a worshiping pagan people familiar with temple worship, but look what they were without. They had no history with the true God. It wasn't part of their heritage. They were without any covenant relationship with a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. They were without any promise of a coming Messiah. They were without any knowledge of a kingdom, the kingdom of God. And they were without the one hope that comes through the gospel of grace. And yet God called the Ephesians to life eternal in Jesus. Amen. So there's that slide I showed you. Watch, watch carefully. Although the Ephesian Gentiles were, (laughs) 
That's us. All these are true. Although we were idol-worshiping pagans without Christ at one time, God effectually called us out of deadness and darkness. He loved us. He quickened, exalted, kept, worked in, worked through us. That's a huge application of this text. God saved an undeserving, godless, pagan, worshiping, idolatrous, lost people through the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which Paul brought to the city and began to share. And people came to Christ. What kind of blows my mind is that one day in the coming kingdom, I will meet some of these Gentile Ephesians from that era. They are my brothers and sisters, just as much as you are my brothers and sisters in Christ. What stories we will have to share together to celebrate and glorify our one Savior. So God called the Ephesians through the preaching of the gospel by the power of the Spirit to walk. What does that word walk mean? Because scripture also tells us to stand. Scripture also tells us about sitting. What is Paul saying here about walking? He's talking about live your life in this manner. Live daily life. You wake up, you walk, you go to sleep. You wake up, you walk, you go to sleep. Live life, live daily life in this manner, in a new way that glorifies the one eternal God. The same God that called the Ephesians calls us. Same gospel, same spirit, same savior to walk. We, church, Orangewood, we are being called by the word of God this morning to walk worthily in a manner worthy of our calling. Isn't that awesome? Today, he is calling us. Today, he is calling you. Some of you, he may be calling to faith. Some of you, he may be calling into a relationship with himself through faith in the gospel of Jesus. You're being wooed. And you know you're being wooed because you have an interest in the words that are being spoken of about the word of God. Some of us, but all of us, if we're those of us that are saints this morning, that are in Christ this morning, all of us are being called this morning, called to walk worthily of our calling. So I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy. By what manner of walking is Worthy of our calling. So let's go through the three. Number one, walk together. Walk together in unity with God. Have this manner, the same attitude. He answers his question, doesn't he? Walk, or he answers my question. How do I walk? He answers it in verses two and three. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Look at that. Have this manner. This is how all of us, Men, women, young, old, this. We're called to walk, to live daily with this manner. This attitude, if you will. Philippians 2, have, this, have the same attitude as Jesus Christ. Now, let me ask you. There's the list. Is this your list of the most sought after attributes? Are these your most desirous, desirable attributes that you're seeking and praying for and asking God to give you? Are they? 
I asked myself that question, and I realized, no. I want to be independent, self-confident. I want my life to be pain-free, care-free, tension-free. Lord, please make my life these things. And I may not use these words, but I realize that often what I'm really asking God to do, I'm asking for heaven now. And that's not so much bad. It's He did put the kingdom of God inside me. There is a longing inside me and in you if you're in Christ to be done, to be completed, to be finished with sin. But my calling in this life is not to a pain-free, care-free, tension-free, self-controlled, well, that kind of works in Christ's self-control, but not independent. I'm called to live in utter dependence in my Savior and Lord. I am called to be God-confident, not self-confident in any way, shape, or form. God-confident, self-confident only in the reality that Christ is in me. So we have this manner, the same attitude as Jesus, these amazing qualities. How do we get them inside of us? We get them by believing Watch this. We get the same attitude in us when we are believing the same truths, even as Christ believed. And that leads us to the next passage. Look at this text. There is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Wow. Most commentators, some commentators believe that Paul is actually quoting a creed here. There are seven ones in this text. So I want you to look at them. They're in order here. There is oneness in God. Why? Why? There's only one God. Do you realize how offensive that single truth is in our culture today? There is only one God. Look at this list. This is Paul. Keep in mind who Paul's preaching to. Worshippers of Artemis. And Artemis was a local deity. There were many other deities. Rome came in and synchronized the worship of Artemis with the worship of Diana. Two different goddesses. But they synchronized over time into one. There is oneness in God because there is one God. Look at this list. First, I want you to notice, evenly dispersed in the seven ones is one spirit, one Lord, one God. There is one God and there is one Godhead. Notice this, there's one body, the church. There is one people of one God on the earth today, one One church. Why? Because there's one Holy Spirit that inhabits the hearts of people. If you have the Holy Spirit, you are quickened and alive. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, according to God's word, you are spiritually dead. How grateful should we be this morning that we stand amongst those that are spiritually alive? 
praise God that we are there, not because of anything we've done or will do or have done or can do, but because God shows us before the foundations of the world, according to his good pleasure, by his grace, one body, one spirit that enables and empowers her on the globe. There is one hope and one Lord, one, one hope for all humanity, one Lord for all humanity. And there is one faith in that one Lord and one baptism. One baptism. The baptism of the one spirit. It's amazing how divisive the church has become about our water baptism. That just goes to show you how fallen we are. We have one baptism, but we have found a way to be better. I am better baptized than you because I was baptized in this church and I was baptized at this time and I was baptized with this much water. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. All who have and will come to Jesus by grace through one faith share an everlasting unity. We are in union with the one Savior. In union. We are in him inside him, if you will, spiritually. Held, kept, protected, carried in him. Paul loves that expression. In this letter, even. We're all being aligned under one heart, into, under the one heart of God. Our hearts are all being aligned according, conformed to, aligned with the heart of God. God has one heart, and it never changes. We are being filled to the fullness of one Savior to the praise of his glory. So that's one. We walk together in unity with God. Number two, we walk together trusting in the diversity of God's gifts. Is there diversity in this room? Absolutely by God's design with great intentionality. Men, women, gifts, talents, looks, everything. How many human beings would it take to fully reflect his full character? An infinite number, correct? We all reflect God uniquely. That gives us value and purpose and uniqueness. But it's all under one creator, one head, one body, through one faith. How do we walk together in unity? Follow with me. Look, God gifts his people with a diversity of gifts in kind and measure. You follow that? God gifts his people. Why? So to gift his churches with the diversity of people in kind and measure. So to gift the whole world with his body that displays what? Unity in diversity. And thus reflects God's redemptive and saving love. Do you follow that? God gifts his people so to gift his churches, so to gift the world. That's why we're called to plant churches in every nation, in every tribe, in every people group. And the body grows as more and more come to Christ. So look at this next text, verse seven. But grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. So yes, God gives gifts to men, but look, he gives gifts to each person. Each one of you is uniquely gifted. 
Isn't that awesome? And according to whose measure? Oh, Lord, I want more of this gift. Sorry, you don't get to decide. I made you. I know what you're capable of. I know what I'm calling you to. Here is the exact necessity of gifts. You need to do exactly what I've created you to do. I don't get to choose how much of this or that that I get. Again, evidence of my brokenness. I look at you and I go, I want your gifts. (laughs) I want to play drums and beatbox. Beatbox. I can't even, don't even know what it means. Can't even say it. Beatbox. Is that what it's called? Beatbox? What is it? One of those. I, I look at all of you and there are things about you that I want. Because I'm so prone to make life all about me. Grace is given to each one of us. And then in this text, he quotes, it's kind of a summary of Psalm 68. And uh, he says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. I think in one of the previous sermons, it was discussed. This is, Psalm 68 was a victory psalm of David. This psalm uh, uh, talks about when a, when a victorious king comes back into his city, who trails behind him. Number one is captives. When Jesus ascended, his captives, sin, death, the grave, hell, and Satan, captives of Jesus, defeated by Jesus, but also who comes behind the king, his troops with all the spoils of their victory. And then the king disperses the spoils as gifts to his soldiers and his people. That's the imagery here. Jesus defeated sin and death. And he even told his disciples, it's good that I go. Because when I go, I'm going to disperse whom? The spirit. I'm going to send the spirit. And with the spirit come the spiritual gifts. So Jesus died, ascended into heaven and sent back, showered on us gifts abilities uniquely designed for each one of us who are in Christ. So God gives his people with a diversity of gifts in kind and in measure. And he gave the, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So Paul now mentions these different categories And he seems in this grouping of descriptions, he seems to be describing certain gifts that are attributed to leadership in the church. It doesn't mean that he's just saying that leaders get gifts. All the rest of you are just peons. So why don't you just come and spectate on Sunday and watch the leaders do the work? Sorry, that's not how the church functions. The leadership has been given in order to equip you and ourselves to do the work of the ministry. We do the ministry as the church. We all have different gifts for different tasks. Every one of us has an obligation to serve the body of Christ using the gifts and the abilities God's given us. So God gives gifts to his people so to give his churches a diversity of people in kind and in measure. Look at Paul in Ephesians 3, verse 7. Look at what he says. Paul understood this. He says in verse 7, of this gospel, I was was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, 
which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. If you are in Christ, you have the unsearchable riches of Christ this morning. By his grace, and you're gifted by his grace. Paul then goes on to say these different roles in the church, these different people with different gifts. Why are these, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, why are they given to the churches? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. We all do the work. My job just happens to be at 1300 Maitland Boulevard. That's where my vocation is. That's where I come to go to work. What address is your employment? That's where you go to work. I represent Christ here and use the gifts he's given me. You represent Christ and use the gifts he's given you where you work. My job is not more sacred than yours. It's the same. We're doing the same work. It's all spiritual. It's all sacred. It's a beautiful thing. Certain gifts are specifically given within each church to equip the saints with knowledge, skill, and experience. So to employ them, to employ you. This sermon is not here so you can go home and go, Chuck's a lousy preacher. It's so that you can go home and be more equipped and encouraged to serve and to give and to use the talents and gifts he's given you. I'm a, just a cheerleader. That's it. And it's awesome. Because I'm also on the field. I'm a player cheerleader. Why are you laughing? So God gifts his people so to gift his churches, so to gift the world with his body that displays unity and diversity and reflects God's redemptive love. Our unity as believers is not something we create. Get this. It's something we possess and we cannot lose. It's like our adoption. I'm adopted, but I wake up some mornings and I feel like an orphan. Where's my next meal coming from? Will my paycheck be enough? Yes. Will my roof fall in? No, I got you. But I act like an orphan. I act like, oh my gosh, it's all up to me. No, it's all up to him. Will you trust me, does he say? And Chuck, every morning I wake up. Chuck, will you trust me today? No, yes. <laughs> yes, I will trust you today. Because you've declared me righteous. And you've adopted me into your family. And you have declared everlasting things about me and given me everlasting blessings. Nothing of that can ever be taken away. But I can choose to believe it or not, even on a daily basis almost, right? Some days I feel very secure in Christ. Some days I'm incredibly insecure. I'm looking up at some people, wishing I were like them. I'm looking down at other people, thanking God I'm not that guy. Good grief. I'm all over the map sometimes. But do I have unity in Christ? Yes, I do. I have it. God calls me through his word to maintain that unity. There are things I need to do to maintain that sense of unity so I can experience and share it with other people. 
If we deny the truth of who and how God is, we slip into confusion and chaos about who we are. It is not unity in conformity. Do you understand that? Do you understand how conformity is external unity being pressed in on you and you have to change something, dress differently, act differently, drive a different car, live in a different neighborhood, get a different job with a different pay scale. Those are all, that's conformity. God isn't calling us to be unified in our conformity. He's calling us to be unified in our diversity. Now, I've got bored yet up there because I have an illustration. There's three different ways I want to use these boards. I want to explain unity and diversity. Imagine for a minute, some in our culture believe that this is maleness. And this is femaleness. And never the twain shall meet. Is that correct? I don't think so. Because God calls me to be gentle. And my wife is more gentle with people than I think about being a lot of the time. But he calls me to be gentle. And he calls me to be compassionate. And he calls me to be caring. Not harsh. Not demanding. These qualities, humble, gentle. These are qualities he calls all humanity to be. He made man male and female. You with me? So what this means is this is not an accurate representation, is it, of healthy maleness or femaleness. Neither, if you will, is this. We are exactly the same. I don't know what the big deal is. There shouldn't be male and female. We are identical. A man ought and can do anything a woman can do. A woman ought and can do anything a man can do. This also is not an accurate representation of how God created humankind, male and female. What is? Y'all were afraid I was going to fall off that ladder too. (laughs) This is a healthy representation of male and femaleness. There are aspects of femaleness that a male is not equipped or qualified to handle. And there are aspects of maleness that women, females, are not equipped and qualified to do. And yet we are one under one head. And we've been created unified in Christ, but diversified by our gifts and abilities. Do you follow me? You see the beauty of that? Now, let's go from maleness and femaleness. Let's go from gender to marriage. How does a healthy marriage work? Is it this? Is that a healthy marriage? You might be tempted to think so. Or is this a healthy marriage? My money, your money. My food, your food. My bedroom, your bedroom. My car, your car. Is that a healthy marriage? Or, again, is it this? My role, your role. 
A lot of those roles overlap, don't they? And they should. There's even mutual submission under one head in marriage. This is the healthiest picture. Now, last, lastly, there are people in the church that have been called to different roles of leadership. Do they lead over you? No. Do they have completely different roles and responsibilities? Completely different? They get to do completely different stuff? No. It's this, once again, is it not? Isn't it this? Some are called to be apostles. Some are called to be pastors. Some are called to be teachers. Some are called to be administrative leaders. Some are called vocationally to not be anywhere near 1300 Maitland Boulevard. So you can take the gospel into the public school system, into your workplace, into Winter Park, into downtown Orlando. Some of you travel, you visit other countries, you take the gospel and across the globe. But in order to be healthy, we need this, right? This is what we need. Does that make sense? Flooring my living room helped out this week. So lastly, we walk together towards the goal. Check it out. He gave gifted people to the church and he gave leaders to the church to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry for the building up of the body. Here it is. Paul's hinting here at God's goal. What is his goal? He goes on. For the building up of the body of Christ until we all, not just the leaders, not just those that are missionaries in other countries, what about if you're a missionary to the, your neighborhood? What if you're a missionary to your office? What if you're a missionary to your, you know, anywhere you are? What's the goal here? That we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Unity under Christ as our head. That we attain what? Maturity. Manhood here is not just malehood as opposed to femalehood. Manhood, humanhood, we're all called to maturity in Christ, all of us. And lastly, we're called to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, you are called to be as filled with Jesus as you're capable of being filled. That's what you're called to. So these are all unity, maturity, fullness. This is the aim. This is why you were called to use your gifts in this church. Because as each part works properly, the church grows. Everyone, all of us. You wake up this morning and you realize there's sin in your heart and you go before the Lord and repent and believe afresh. The whole church is built up. And then you come and you share your struggles with others and they have that struggle and you pray for them. The whole church is built up. In reality, day by day, we're called to do this together. So we walk towards the goal, unity in faith, maturity. Let me talk about maturity just for a minute. There's two points under here I want you to see. Maturity is being rooted, grounded as spiritual parents so that we may not be, no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about. Isn't it interesting? This is a guy who's been shipwrecked. Look at his, look at his description here. Tossed to and fro by waves, 
carried about by every wind. He knows what he's talking about. This imagery is personal. But he says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. See that? So here's the deal. What's maturity? Maturity is no longer being so vulnerable as children that we are easily deceived and gullibly believe the very next exciting thing we hear. Right? That's what a child does. No longer vulnerable children, easily deceived, gullibly believing the next new and interesting thing they hear. But rather, so instead of being silently led along by whoever shares the most persuasively or passionately into the next folly, what do mature people do? We don't remain silent. We actually have the truth. And we speak the truth in love into the chaos of our world. We speak the word because we have the word. You with me? That's what he's getting at here. We speak God's truth and love to one another. We're all to grow up into Christ, the head of the church. We're called not to stay children. We're called to grow up into adults who then raise children. We're called to be disciple makers. How many of us have been discipled and then we stopped? How many of us haven't been discipled? Per se, and we're not asking, how do I get discipled? How do I become a disciple maker? What do I need to do to be a disciple maker? These are serious questions. God calls us to unity, yes. He calls us to maturity. So rather than being swayed by what everyone else is teaching and promoting that's new, different, and attractive, the maturing Christ follower, grounded in God's word, which is rooted in historical fact and tested by time, is able to speak forth the truth into the chaos. So let's look at fullness. This is where the text ends. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him, into Christ. That's the goal. Into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part, look, when each part, who are the parts? You are. I am. We are the parts. When each part is working properly, what happens? It makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And what is the result of a church that is maturing and growing together? What is the result of a church that is walking together in unity, walking together, recognizing and appreciating the diversity of gifts we have, walking together is a body that is loving, reaching and loving. So Orangewood, God's calling us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling in Christ. Because of who we are in him, may we walk together in unity with God and one another, trusting in the diversity of God's gift towards the goal of God, all to the praise of his glory. You with me? This is what we're called to be and do. There's work to be done by all of us. So my challenge to you is engage, engage where you are with who you are, able to do what you're able to do with no comparison to any others. Engage. Remind yourself whose you are. 
Find out what your spiritual gifts are. And by all means, we walk not alone. We walk together. Find a community if you haven't already. And by golly, if you're in one, talk your community into reaching to receive more people into community. Because we're not growing if we're in community that's not growing. I am the community group's pastor, so I can say these things. Look at this quote by Paul David Tripp. Your life is much bigger than a good job, an understanding spouse, and non-delinquent kids. It's bigger than beautiful gardens, nice vacations, and fashionable clothes. Orangewood, we are an upper, upper, middle-class, white church predominantly. We need to be very careful that we are not being lulled into a lethargy of comfort and luxury at the expense of loving and sharing and using all of our blessings to build the church. You with me? In reality, you are part of something immense, something that began before you were born and will continue after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into his kingdom and progressively changing them into his likeness. And he wants you to be a part. He wants you to be a part. Pray with me. Father God, Father I can't help but listen to my own sermon. I want to be a part. And Lord, I want to work properly. I want to use the gifts you've entrusted to me. Whatever they are. Help me see how I am to be used to build your body. And as your body is built, it reaches and pulls Lost sheep in. Father, I want to be about that. Father, thank you. Thank you for the privilege of being known by you. Thank you for the privilege of knowing you. Thank you that you've created us in your image and you are a communal God. So we are designed to function healthily in community, not isolation. Help us. Help Orangewood. Help us get more and more intentionally into community and help us more and more intentionally desire and pursue maturity leading to spiritual adults that understand and are engaged in making disciples. Father, come, have your way with us. We love you. We believe. Help our unbelief. Keep striving with us. Keep sanctifying us. Keep growing us up and out, I pray. Father, if there's anybody in this room who has never trusted Christ and you're wooing and tugging on their heart, may they understand that sin separates us from God. And you're a holy God and you must punish sin. So we're stuck unless you rescue us. So you did. You sent Jesus and he came and he lived a perfect life. He 
perfectly obeyed his father's will. He earned a 100% A++ on the righteousness test and then offers us his grade if we'll just believe in him as our Lord and as our Savior. And when we trust Christ as the one Lord, one Savior, one King, when we entrust ourselves to you, Father, through Christ, we receive not only that righteousness, that perfect righteousness, but we also, all of our sins are forgiven and we are washed white as snow. Father, you sent your son to come and on that cross, you poured out all of your anger, all of your wrath for all of our sins. The punishment for sin is death and Jesus died and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead, revealing and proving to us that his death was sufficient in the Father's eyes to cover our sin. He rose from the dead, and he offers the gospel that whoever believes in Christ as Lord and Savior will receive the free gift of eternal life. Father, if there's someone here who's hungry for that, may they trust Jesus Christ. And for the rest of us, for the rest of us that are saints, like the Ephesian Gentiles that had become Christians, Paul calls them saints in the beginning of this letter. Father, for us, help us walk worthily in a manner worthy of our calling. Come and have your way with Orangewood. Grow us up and grow us out. We pray all this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.